Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we take on a very interesting topic today as we find it in the text, the topic of church discipline. Maybe you had parents who would warn you. Maybe you heard these types of warnings growing up. Don't make me stop this car. Did you ever hear that one? Don't make me turn around and us go home. How about this one? Don't make me come upstairs and tell you two to stop bickering up there. Or maybe this one, hushed tones, but firm in the supermarket. If you don't straighten up when we get into the car, you're going to be in trouble. If you think about it with me, these types of warnings from a loving parent are very kind. I mean, this is love. This is a parent telling you neither one of us really want to do the discipline thing. We're both going to be a lot happier if you'll just comply, if you'll just obey. Save us both the misery of that. But if you're like me, there were times, even though my mother, who did most of my discipline, even though she would give the warnings, there were times when I did not heed the warning. And she had to bring discipline. In fact, I remember the last time she disciplined me like that. Now, let me just put in here parenthetically and importantly, some of you, this topic of discipline can be painful. That you didn't have a loving mom like I did. You were actually abused. And that, you know, that is no laughing matter. I understand this evokes maybe some pain for you. And I'm really sorry that you had that. And again, as always, if you have something like that, you need to talk to somebody about. We would love to help you with that. But I had a sweet little mom, and my mom was five foot two, and uh, she was very sweet, very affectionate. But I am grateful that she had boundaries, and that when necessary, she would enforce those boundaries with reasonable, non-abusive discipline. But the last time she disciplined me, I was about 12 or 13, probably too old for a spanking. And so, but mom, mom, uh, here, here's, what, here's what happened. So it was Christmas time. We were decorating the tree and my sister and I, she's four years older. We're bickering, playfully bickering. We're not even mad. We're just having fun teasing each other, but it must've been annoying my mom, certainly killing the Christmas vibe. And so uh, mom apparently had been warning us. And if you keep this up, Jim, this is going to happen. I, I'm, I'm oblivious to all that because we're just playing. We're just play fighting. But then I hear mom say it, Jim, I'm going to spank you. Oh, and uh, she goes to the kitchen where the instruments of Kool-Aid stirring and discipline were held. <laughs> so I was typically spanked on those rare occasions. I was typically spanked with a large Kool-Aid stirring spoon, plastic utensil. So mom brought that harmless. So my mom comes again, all five foot two of her. She comes to me into the living room where the Christmas tree was. And she tells me to turn around. Never liked that moment. I don't want to turn around. But uh, I remember turning around and mom gave me what I can recall, maybe three pops with the stirring spoon. I did not feel a thing. And uh, my jeans were doing their job. You know, I didn't feel a thing. And so uh, I found it all comical because I wasn't really mad at my sister. All things just humorous to me. And um, but I knew not to laugh in front of my mom, so I just took off upstairs to my room. My mom misinterpreted that. She told my sister, she said, I think I hurt Jim's feelings. <laughs> mom didn't hurt anything that day. That was not a thing at all. But again, I am so grateful for my sweet mother who loved me, very affectionate, and, and didn't, didn't go to that move very often. But, but when she thought it was necessary, I'm glad she cared enough about me to discipline, cared enough about the family to maintain order. She was a wonderful mom. Well, here we come to church discipline. And I know this could be just the first time some have ever heard of this. And if you've ever heard of church discipline, you never know, have known a church that would actually do it. Maybe never heard a sermon on the topic, but here we come. We've been walking through first Corinthians. We come to chapter five and, and we're going to see really how obvious this topic is. 
And I want you to see with me today from our text in just a moment that church discipline is a biblical requirement for a church. I think that's going to be very apparent from our text. Also see this, that church discipline is essential to preserve the holiness, the purity of a church. And church discipline is always to be carried out in love with a redemptive goal. I think those are going to be all very clear from our text today. Now, we, we had Paul last time uh, bring up the topic of church discipline back in chapter 4, verse 21. He said this, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? But then he comes into chapter 5 and now a full-on teaching about church discipline that he expects the Corinthians to, to carry out. So let's go to chapter 5, pick it up at verse 1. Lengthy passage today, so hang in there with me. Every one of these verses is very important. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate <clears throat> with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Chapter four, he tells them, listen, when I come, if necessary, I'm going to initiate church discipline there in Corinth. Chapter five, he says, don't wait on me. This is too urgent. Don't delay. You need to carry out the church discipline right now yourselves. In fact, he says, I'm already with you in spirit. So he's not saying something supernatural there. He's not saying, you know, I, I'm there somehow in some mystical sense. He's saying like we say sometimes, look, hey, I'm with you in spirit. My mind's there with you. Now, there is a powerful dynamic here because you have Paul here writing inspired scripture. So imagine them there in Corinth. The church receives this letter, the very words of God coming through Paul. And there is something powerful going on. They are in the presence of Jesus and the word of God is being read to them. But here's the point here, and here's the question. Why is Paul urgent that church discipline be, be initiated there? Why is he urgent about it? And here's the answer. Because of the presence of scandalous sin in the church. He's urgent about church discipline because of the presence of scandalous, even sexual sin 
in the church, that's back to verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So just as Paul had been informed about the terrible divisions in the church at Corinth, he had also been informed, it had been reported to him about this case of sexual immorality ongoing in the life of the church. And here, apparently, there is a man who's in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And he's not sorry, he's not repenting, and he's remaining active in the church. Now, we know about Corinth, it was a city known for its sexual immorality. So many in the church would have come from a Gentile background. And so <clears throat> this type of immorality would have been a part of almost all of their past. But here they are in a church, in a city with a reputation for immorality. We know in Corinth, it was a city with a temple to Aphrodite. And they tell us that a thousand prostitutes would have been working out of that pagan temple. So, so the church there in Corinth was in a very immoral place. And the city of Corinth was known for its immorality. <clears throat> Let me take care of this a second. They were known for their immorality, but not this type of immorality. Even the pagans, Paul said, don't practice what's going on there. They wouldn't tolerate this. Somebody's with his stepmom. So here's the situation. There are two adults in an immoral relationship, but only one of them was active in that church because only one of them is called out for rebuke here. So again, what's the problem? Somebody might hear this. Well, I get it. There's a guy doing something kind of weird, kind of gross, but what's that to do with the church? Why does the church have to do anything? Everybody's doing their own thing here. Well, because this is a gospel issue. Think about it with me. What was it that you were saved from? So when you talk about, I've been saved, saved from what? You were saved from your sins. You were saved from the penalty of sin. So be clear on when you're talking about, I'm saved. You're saved from the judgment to come. You're saved from hell because of your sin. Remember, the wage of sin is death. That's what our sin deserves when Jesus saved you from those sins and all that those sins deserve. And when you were saved from those sins, you were saved unto Christ, for Christ, for a very different life than the one you had before. So it would be impossible for somebody to say, I am so glad to be saved from all these sins, but give me those sins. I'm just going to keep living the same life. I'm not really sorry for these things that made me worthy of hell. In fact, we read how clear this distinction is to be in places all over the New Testament, but places like 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In fact, Paul began this letter bringing about that teaching on the distinction. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 2, he says to the Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, listen, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So in a corrupt world, in a corrupt city like Corinth, the church of the Lord is to be distinct and different. They've been sanctified. That's a beautiful word meaning they've been made holy. This is what Jesus does for a person. You were a part of the world. Jesus pulls you out. You're set apart now. You're clean. You've been made righteous in the sight of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. It's beautiful. So you're positionally righteous because of the work of Jesus. And for those who have been made righteous by Christ, 
He intends to have us live a life that is now righteous, a life that continues to be set apart through the help of the Holy Spirit. So a life of ongoing sin, we're just saying this, it's incompatible with being one of the saints of God. We are in the world, but we're no longer to have the world reigning in us. So, so why church discipline? Because of the presence of scandalous sexual sin in the church. How about this? Why church discipline? Because of the presence of arrogant sin in the church. Notice verse two, all that sexual sin Paul calls out, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So the sin that Paul calls out, it is shocking. Paul's aghast at what's happening there, but he's even more alarmed at the church's tolerance of that sin. Notice here in the text, Paul's not rebuking the man here. He's rebuking the church for not rebuking the man. He's alarmed. He's correcting the whole church for not addressing the sin of this man. In fact, Paul says, you're being arrogant. He says again in verse six, your boasting is not good. One scholar said it this way, the horror lies not just in the fact that there's sexual immorality among them, but they are taking no action. So the church at Corinth was a church confused about how to implement grace. Now, partially we might sympathize with them. Maybe they were shrugging their shoulders like, well, aren't we all sinners? I mean, it is unseemly what he's doing, but we're all sinners. Can we, can we really say anything? And aren't we all under grace? So what do you do? But appears there's more going on here because Paul calls out their arrogance, calls out their boasting. Maybe it was that they were puffed up about this. You know, I'm beyond the thinking that sin matters anymore. Grace is so amazing that I don't have to worry about my behavior. I can just live anywhere, any way that I please. And that does appear to be the Corinthian problem. So the church, Paul mentions, you're all sinning by tolerating the behavior of this one. They're boasting. Maybe boasting in spite of this sin. Look at us with all of our spiritual gifts. We don't have to worry about this problem. Or this is no problem at all. We're just so proud of how tolerant we have become. In fact, that's an actual contemporary problem in our country, really across the Western world. You'll find all kinds of churches and all kinds of clergy in those churches that are proud of their tolerance of sin. You can go to some churches where the tradition is for them to wear robes. That's not the problem. But um, you can go to those churches. Sometimes the clergy, they wear robes. Sometimes around that robe, they'll wear a stole, this long scarf. And they'll be declaring by the colors on that scarf, we are proud to be tolerant of sin. In fact, we're celebrating. It's not sin. We're so proud of it. You can drive by some churches and they'll have a banner out front to let you know that they are, they are proud to be tolerant of what the Bible calls sin. That they've, they've now said, this is not sin, and we want everybody to know. That that clergy would look down on you for going to a church that actually believes what the scripture says on those issues. So this idea of sinning and, and tolerating and arrogance is not new. Oh, but it's happening in our time. So listen, whether it's fear that keeps a church from acting, whether it's compromise or outright pride, pride, it's wrong to knowingly tolerate scandalous sin in the church, which then leads us to a question. Well, how do you know what sins to address? Because it is true. We're all sinners. Every one of us, including all your pastors, all your deacons, we all have an ongoing daily struggle with sin. So how do you know when that you say, well, that's a sin that you have to address? Well, this is where the word of God is so helpful 
And 1 Corinthians 5 in particular, very helpful for us as we think, how do I implement this? So think about the situation. Corinth was a church with many problems. And Paul here is addressing them. He's addressed them in a previous letter. He's addressing them now in 1 Corinthians. He's going to address them again in 2 Corinthians. All kinds of issues. Their arrogance, their division, all this stuff. Their lack of love. He's going to, he's going to write by the Spirit's guidance, 1 Corinthians 13. they got all kinds of issues. But Paul's not saying, and every one of you is going to be disciplined in the church. So he's being patient with so many sin issues. He's teaching them, rebuking them to get them to health. But then there are some issues, all right, now this is egregious, all sin's horrible, none of us should tolerate any sin in ourselves, but some things are so scandalous, so injurious to the church, so harmful to the testimony of the church, okay, we, we have to deal with that one, we can no longer be patient on that one. And so that is the, the kind of the bar for us as we think about that. By the way, it's not just immorality. But it certainly is immorality. By the way, the, the word Paul uses here, pornaya, is a word that covers all kinds of sexual immorality. And so whether it's a relationship before marriage that's engaging in sexual activity, that is still sinful, by the way, or extramarital types of things and, and all kinds of things. That covers, covers all of the sexual sins of the Bible. That certainly is an issue. A person won't repent. That's a church discipline issue. But it's not just that. Notice in verse 11. Anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. The idea is somebody who gets into something and they're saying, hey, it's not sin. I'm proud of it. I'm not repenting. I'm offended that you would bring it up to me. I'm not stopping this. Whatever that thing is that now becomes disruptive to a church that also would be something that would be a grounds for church discipline. So we try to be, as, as with God's help, we try to be a biblical church. And so that means we can't ignore the call to church discipline here. So we've crafted our constitution and bylaws as far back as 2013 to include a section on church discipline. How would we do this? We can't ignore this in the text. How would we do it? And we have two different categories in there of areas where we would have to address spiritual discipline. We talk about in our constitution bylaws, essential moral failure and essential biblical failure. So serious sins would be things like, and we could just give some examples, not exhaustive, but somebody who's an embezzler or somebody who's irreconcilably divisive. So of course we're going to have disagreements in a church, but somebody could be so difficult, so divisive. And even after meeting with them, they could still be just causing trouble, pitting one group, another group. We don't have to just take that. That would be a grounds where like, well, brother, we can't get you to come, come along. And so now we need to uh, execute church discipline here. But it's not just behavior things. It can be theology. So that what we call essential biblical failure. Somebody who becomes heretical, denying one of the major doctrines of the church. Somebody who takes any doctrine and makes it divisive in the church. We as a church can protect ourselves by instituting what God gives here, appropriate church discipline. By the way, inactivity is a grounds for church discipline. So what is inactivity? We're very gracious here as a church that, that a person who, who is able-bodied, they live locally, but they don't want to worship for a whole year, then we would say, then you can't be a member. So there's no such thing as a person who's healthy, around, who just says, I don't worship. I'm not coming. 
I'm going to forsake the assembling together. We would say that's serious enough that you can't be here. It's not good for the church. It's not good for the person. In fact, in a church where people can vote on things to, to lead people on the rolls like that. And so for years now, we, we try to get those people back. Nothing pleases us more than reaching out to somebody. Hey, we've been missing you. We want you to be a part. And for them to say, I'm coming back. Oh, we love that. But for those who say, no, I'm not coming back. You just can't stay a member like that. But here's, here's the goal for us, though. It's always redemptive. That's what the scripture tells us. This is all out of love. In fact, everybody who joins the church, you come through our Route 33 class. That's our new member class. And we walk through, among a number of things, our, our church covenant. And they're among the things in our church covenant that we aspire to with God's help. We have this line that everybody who joins has to understand. We say this, with God's help, I will. There's a list of things, but here's one of them. I will welcome, redempt, I will welcome redemptive church discipline if I turn away from Christ by rejecting biblical orthodoxy, morality, or unity. And then we cite there Matthew 18, which I'm going to read in just a moment. So everybody who joins us, I, I welcome that. I, I understand that's part of what it is to be in a healthy church. I would welcome it. If I stray from the truth, if I stray from biblical morality, I'm going to expect you to try to help me out by coming to me to get me to repent. Well, let's see this as well. Church discipline can involve removal from the church. In fact, Paul says this in multiple ways here in our text. Let me bring it back to your attention. How about verse 7? He says, cleanse out the old leaven. So here he uses that analogy of unleavened bread. And we know how leaven works, yeast works. It will permeate a, a lump of dough. And so he says, sin is like that. You've got to get that out of your church family. It will permeate and do damage to the church. So the idea of removing Verse 2, very clear, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 13, the same idea, he says it in another way. Purge the evil person from among you. Verse 11, do not associate with this one. This one who calls himself brother, but is in persistent, unrepentant sexual sin. See with me again, it's not an option to look the other way when there's serious ongoing sin going on. We have no other option. In fact, Jesus spoke this way. Again, anticipating what somebody might be thinking, well, that just seems harsh. Could you really do that? Is that really what we're supposed to do? Well, here's very clear teaching, 1 Corinthians. But Jesus spoke this way. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus addresses these seven churches, he addresses one church in Thyatira, and Jesus rebukes the church for the same thing. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who, who's leading church members into immorality. So there's the sexual immorality again. And she was a false teacher. Jesus gives her that biblical name Jezebel. But he was upset that one of his churches would merely tolerate that sin. Again, doesn't it seem a bit unusual to our ears that a church would actually remove some people from them? Somebody said, that just doesn't seem loving. I don't know if I want a church like that. Well, let me remind you, it's not just churches that do this. And let me remind you, it's, it's actually kind of surprising what organizations will remove people from them. And I want you to see how normal this actually is. Well, how about the NBA and the NFL? So if you're a sports fan, uh, you hear from time to time where the league will say, you know, because of that behavior, you no longer can play in our league. And usually that doesn't bother us unless that player is on our favorite team. And we go, hey, come on, where's the grace here? He's amazing. We need him if we're going to win a Super Bowl or win an NBA championship. Individual teams will do it. So even if the, even if the league doesn't act, the individual teams say, this, this guy's a great athlete, but he is so disruptive in the locker room. He's killing team morale. We're going to trade this guy. You, you can't be one of us anymore. Or maybe it's a place where you work. 
Maybe you've had an abusive coworker. It just sours the whole atmosphere of where you work. And you're just thinking, is anybody going to do anything? Can this person act this way around us? I wish the bosses would remove this person, fire this person. And if, if you've ever worked in a place and they do take that difficult person away, you're like, oh, I am so grateful. I can go to work now because somebody loved us enough and cared enough to get that disruptive one out of here. So here we see it out in a culture. It's not an unusual thing, but here's what's unusual. In a church, it's always supposed to be redemptive. Our motive is love. I don't know if, if your boss loves the coworkers. I don't know. And I certainly don't think the NBA and NFL does. But here we are in a church when we face these types of issues that none of us want to have to deal with. Here, we have to come with a heart of love, always with the goal of redemption. Paul here is concerned for the church. Paul's concerned for the man. Notice what he said. Even though it sounds harsh, look at verse 5 again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, listen, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's he saying there? Sounds harsh. No, he's acting like an unbeliever. Let's, Let's put him outside of the church. He can't be part of the fellowship anymore. We don't hate him. Let's put him out there so that he might come to his senses. We want this person who apparently is not saved. We thought he was. He's acting like a pagan. He's living like a pagan. Let's pray that he'll have a hard time that he might put his faith in Jesus and be saved there at last. So again, taking this all to heart for ourselves as a church, we've tried to be very thoughtful. We want to do church discipline in the right ways with the right spirit. So again, in our constitution and bylaws, we've put together a very thoughtful process that we've had now for, for years, over a decade now. And so when we have to step into these issues, again, we don't want to, it's not fun, but we come with grief. That'd probably be the dominant emotion. When we have to address something, there's real sorrow in us. And I remember when we've had to do this, we've come all the way to the business meeting and I'll explain this process in a moment. I, I remember having a lump in my throat, you know, on the verge of tears having to do this. So there's no, there's no delight in it. We come with humility into these things because isn't it true that every one of us, it's true, all of us are sinners. If you're a healthy Christian, you still face temptations, but you're fighting against those temptations. You're not giving yourself a pass. Well, we're all tempted. I'm just going to go with it. No, you're a healthy Christian. You know Jesus. Like, I, I'm disappointed that I'm even tempted. Anybody feel that way? I wish I weren't tempted. And you look forward to heaven when you'll no longer be tempted again. But here you are. You love Jesus. And here you face temptation. We, we sing sometimes. We have a heart that's prone to wander. Like, what's wrong with me? Same thing that's wrong with every other genuine Christian. So we're all humbled by this. We all know what it's like to fail. So we come humbly to somebody who's stubborn in their sin. And we want to give grace. So here's one of the things that informs our process here. Galatians 6, 1. So 1 Corinthians 5 helps us have a good biblical process. But Galatians 6, 1, which says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So hear it again. Our goal is redemption. Our great delight is to be able to restore somebody who repents. And this is the very same goal that our Savior gave us when he taught on this in Matthew chapter 18. So we're just trying to follow the scripture when we have to do this thing. So Matthew 18, listen to the words of your Savior, picking up in verse 15. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus continues, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So that's the process we seek to follow. That's what Jesus said about how his churches should be cared for. And so let's imagine the scenario. You become aware of a dear friend here at church who's gotten himself or herself into some type of sinful behavior that's becoming knowledge and, it's, and you just know it's wrong. What's Jesus say you're to do? You're to go. You, you don't tell the pastors. You go to that person. And I know you don't want to because who wants to? You're like, oh, I don't want this, but it's somebody close to you. You're the one closest to them and, and the Lord's put on your heart. Then you should go to that brother or sister out of love with great humility. And what are you wanting? I just want to share with them in love and I want to encourage them to repent. But Jesus tells you they might not listen to you. And then what do you do? All right, still ball still in your court. I don't want to do this, but I, I need to get another maybe brother or sister from our life group. And let's make contact and let's, let's just get them to repent. All we want is repent. And listen, what we pray is that person will repent. Pastors don't even know about it. Deacons don't know about it. It's not a church discipline issue. You're doing what Jesus said. But if they won't repent, then all right, that's when the church gets involved. So now you're being biblical. You're not gossiping. You're coming, not telling everybody about it, but you're maybe coming to the pastors. We, we are very concerned about this brother or sister. And then we'll also join you in, in praying and grieving and then reaching out to this person. Try to get them to meet. And then, of course, Jesus said, they may not even listen to that group, then bring them to the church. And what we do here at Staples Mill, we use our deacons. We have a wonderful team of godly deacons. And when we have these sad situations where somebody won't repent of some sin like this, then we'll bring it to the deacons. And the deacons and pastors will know all the sad details. And then together, if the person won't repent, then we come to the church in a business meeting and we make a recommendation to the church that we dismiss this member. Again, with a lump in our throats, tears in our eyes, no delight, no arrogance, no condemning spirit. We just wanted this person to repent and they won't. Therefore, we're doing exactly what the scripture says. We have no choice about it out of great love. Here's what we've said. There's times we've had to do it. We say it with sincerity. Oh, but nothing would thrill us more to be able to welcome this person back into fellowship if they one day will repent. I'm happy to tell you that we've had on some occasions people that we've had to remove due to sin that they've come back. Some of them have come back like, you know, I was, I didn't see it then. I was wrong. I now see that I was wrong and I want to walk with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus again. And so that's the process. Again, the goal is redemption. One final word for us here. Paul gives us another helpful point of application. He wants you to see the distinction between how we operate in the church and how we operate in the world. Paul here addresses there was a misunderstanding when he had told them previously, don't associate with sexually immoral people. They're thinking, how do you live like that? We live in Corinth. Everybody we know is sexually immoral. And then he say, no, no, I don't mean people out in the world. I'm talking about the church. Notice what he says here. Verse nine again. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. And he goes on to say, you need to purge that person out. So, so the Corinthians needed clarity on this. We're going to operate differently within the body of Christ than we do out in the culture out there. And do you know there's a difference? So we're not out railing against the culture, expecting unbelievers to act like believers. No doubt we are distressed by how lost our culture is. And we'll vote in certain ways to try to slow down the moral decay here, but we're out sharing the gospel in the community. That's the hope. We're not nitpicking individual sins of people. We're just trying to lead people to Jesus. Their sinning that we see is a symptom of not knowing Jesus. So that's how we're operating. 
But in here, amongst ourselves, when we see people get into individual sin issues and are not repenting, then we have to follow the scriptures there. And I started thinking about, you know, it's a bit like some of these recovery ministries, how they operate. So think about AA with me. My dad, years ago, got into AA to, to help him break free from his alcoholism. And so here's how AA works. Notice, I've never seen an AA group go to a bar to preach against drinking in the bar. There might be some group that does it. I've never heard. That's not their method to go tell drinkers to stop drinking. But in AA, if you join AA, there's a very different relationship. Because by joining, you're saying, would you help me? I have a real problem. I'm addicted. I need help. So they even encourage you, if you're beginning to feel tempted to go out for another drink, call your sponsor, call somebody to help you. Isn't that a bit like a church? I think it's where AA got the idea. That out in the community, we see a lot of things that grieve us. We don't always have the opportunity or the relationship to speak to all these, all these hundreds of problems. We're just going to bring the gospel out. But in here, haven't we invited each other? Hey, would you help me follow Jesus? I need brothers and sisters around me setting the example that we've seen here in 1 Corinthians, but also calling me to repentance. We do all that without being the wrong kind of judging. Paul says we are to judge within the church. But we also have other scriptures that tell us how not to do it. So we're not judging in the critical nitpicking sense. In other words, it's not a witch hunt here. We're not looking to turn over rocks in everybody's life. I want to catch you doing something. We're not nitpicking each other. We don't have a condemning spirit. We've already said we're all humbled by this whole topic of sin. Neither do we have a hypocritical spirit. Jesus, almost comically, in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about people who have a log in their own eye, trying to take a speck out of somebody else's eye. We can't be that way where I'm excusing myself while enjoying picking on other people. No, we're to be humble with holy hands, holy hearts, stepping toward brothers and sisters to help them overcome areas of sin. But here we are to move out into the world. So what we don't want to do is to overcompensate in our right zeal for holiness and purity. We can't cut ourselves off from the world. So Paul isn't telling the Corinthians, keep yourself aloof from those who are sinners out in the culture. Actually, we need to step toward them while remaining unstained by them, by not joining in the same behavior. So very practically, you think, okay, I am to avoid being around those who are hypocrites in the life of the church, calling them to repentance. But I am to be around lost people who actually are immoral in the culture. Here's the key, though. You're not to be with them while they're being immoral. If you have somebody who's living a crazy partying life, you might discover, all right, I can't go out with them on Friday while they're doing all this craziness, but I can't cut myself off from them. I tell you, I'll try to get to them on Saturday. Maybe we can go for coffee. I can do that. We'll go to neutral ground. Even better, let me get them on this ground. Hey, would you come with me to my life group social? Meet some other people. Would you come with me? Sit with me at church on Sunday. Here's some, here's some news of hope and a brand new life that Jesus has given me. So we're not cutting ourselves off from people who need us. We're going to be around them to bring them to Christ. Final word here or two is this. I welcome this same process in my own life. So no, our pastors aren't thinking we're beyond this system. We just get to implement. No, we understand we're under this as well. We're part of this body as well. Now, discipline looks a little different for us as pastors. So if we fail to be above reproach, we don't get to stay in our roles. We would be removed not only from the church if we persisted in sin, but from our roles. And that's rightfully so. We welcome that. But here's my job as a pastor to never put you in that situation. So my job is to live the life through the power of the spirit. When I sin, I need to repent immediately and, and walk with Christ so that I've never put you in that position of having that awkward conversation with me. Having to have a personnel team have to go through something awkward like that. But listen, the, the church would be right to do that. 
So likewise, you have the same responsibility. Listen, I welcome biblical redemptive church discipline. If I ever stray, I would want the church coming to help me. That's, that's the posture you want to have. But have this motivation. But I never want the church to ever have to do that in my life. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to walk with him in obedience. And I'm weak, but the Holy Spirit's strong. I'm going to depend on him to help me walk in victory. And not just avoiding sin. I want to move out in this world on a mission. That's part of being obedient, obeying the mission. And I also want to walk in the ongoing grace of the Lord. So when we stumble, we get back up in the grace of God. In fact, let's close with this ringing in their ears. The beautiful grace of God. 1 John 1, 9. Don't you love it? The promise of scripture. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray with me. Lord, all this talk about sin, it's difficult, it's unpleasant. This topic of church discipline, not something any of us relish, enjoy, want to do. But we thank you for the clarity and Lord, thank you for just the reminder that there are things that shouldn't remain in our lives, things for which you have given us great forgiveness that we should not continue in. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters as they're thinking about things maybe you've brought to mind, maybe sins in their lives that they've been tolerating. God, would you, would you point those out? And Lord, we know your goal is redemption. Show them that you have offered forgiveness for those and God, give them the power to overcome. Lord, I pray also for some who need to reach out for help that they would ask for maybe a brother or sister to help them come out of some bondage to sin. And so, Lord, I pray that they would feel that freedom to do so. And Lord, especially for those who need to be saved today, who've never known that you had come to offer forgiveness through the death of your son on the cross and the resurrection. God, would you, would you draw men and women to salvation today? We're asking in the name of Jesus. Amen.